You can have a seat. Morning, I'm Nate Menor. I'm the lead pastor here, for those of you that don't know me. Um, morning. How are you doing, Jeff? Uh, so about 10 years ago, I was working at Superfair, and if you're like, oh, another Superfair story, I'm, I'm sorry. It is what it is. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was working, and um, so we had, I was working as the manager of order fulfillment. So we're shipping out the orders for the company, and we, we need another person. And there's also the thought that in a couple of years, or a couple of months, we're gonna expand and we're gonna need a supervisor for the same department. So I'm looking to hire somebody with the thought that this person might need to supervise this department within the year. Uh, and so I'm, I'm out there and I'm, I'm looking for different people and you know interviewing and stuff. And I found the guy, like this was perfect, right? So this guy, I'm interviewing him and he was an assistant manager at Guitar Center and he was really good. He'd done all the things that we needed. Um, he had a, a lot of good experience, but they weren't paying him nearly enough. So I'm like, I can, I can hire this guy. He's gonna be super happy to just take the job that we've got. And there's a good chance that he's like ready to take the next step in a couple months. Like, so I, I brought him on and Mike was a great hire at first. Like he was such a good hire. He checked all the boxes. It was like, he was doing everything right. He, you know, all, all the people of the sales department loved him, which was rare. Um, there was just like, he's checking all the boxes, right? So after about six months, we're like, okay, well, we need a supervisor. We talked to the internal candidates. He was still the best candidate. So it's like, all right, he's the guy. So bring him in and like, all right, well, we're gonna bump you up to supervisor. It's a little bit of a pay bump, you know, and, and I'm not in charge of him. Like I'm still his boss, but I'm not like day-to-day -day working next to him. He's handling the order fulfillment department. And we were expanding as a company, so it was great. It was a bunch of work off my plate and he's handling it. And for the first couple weeks-ish, like it seemed like it was going great. But then there's like some conflict inside that department. And I knew all those people, like I'd worked alongside them. I'm like, this is kind of weird. Like, I don't really know where this is coming from. And then, you know, Mike started to get a little bit angry about some of this stuff. So we're like, all right, well, you know, there's a problem there. We're not really sure what it is, but kind of just keeping, keeping my ear to the ground, trying to figure it out. One day after work, like it's like 4.59, right? And one of the people from that department come and they're like, hey, Nate, I need to talk to you. I'm like, all right, what's up? And they're like, well, I'm gonna, I just wanna talk like here for a minute and then I wanna take you into the back. Like, all right. So we talked for a couple minutes and then he, he takes him in the back and he goes, listen, I have this order that I'm supposed to fulfill and none of the inventory is where it's supposed to be. It's a really, it's not a big order, but it's a really high dollar order. So it's just a couple of phones, but it's a lot of money. I'm like, oh, okay. And none of them are where they're supposed to be. There's like eight or 10 phones on there and not, they're, all, they're all missing. He's like, but this isn't the first time this has happened. And every time like I give it to Mike and then Mike magically finds it and I figured out like he's hiding phones. I'm like, hey, he's hiding phones, that's stupid. He's, so he goes over to Mike's desk, he opens up like the file cabinet at the bottom and it's full of like super expensive high-end phones. And he's like, what he does is he hides the good phones and then when we go to fulfill them, we can't find them. And then the sales department yells at us because we're incompetent and then they escalated and then they go to Mike and then Mike finds the phones that he had the whole time. And the sales department's like, oh, Mike's so good. I wish that he had good people. So like Mike looks amazing and everybody else, like the rest of us all look like we're incompetent. Like, okay, that's stupid. Like really, is this what we're dealing with? So I went and I addressed it with Mike and yup, he was like super awkward about it and he was angry about it. But, but the thing was, is like, he was so good at the front end. Like we were pretty sure we had a superstar and what we discovered was, no, he wasn't actually that good. Like he could do the work, but his own 
insecurity, whatever it was, like he was a bad supervisor. He was willing to throw his team under the bus so that he would look better, which is not, like that's not a good leader, it's not a good supervisor. His character was revealed and, and what we discovered was he's a selfish jerk. That's really what it was, like that's what we found out. The problem is, is we don't know that on the front end, right? Like we, we discovered that over time and, and on the front end, if you'd have been like, is he a good hire? Yeah, he's a great hire. Now I'm like, one of the three worst hires I've ever made. Like, he was terrible, right? But you don't know that on the front end. You, you discover that over time. And, and that's because we're imperfect people. We don't know everything. And so this morning, we're talking about a parable, and the point of the parable becomes we don't actually know everything, and we really need to trust God to be the one that balances everything out in the end. God is the one that has all the knowledge, and he's infinite, and so we need to trust him. Our big idea this morning is this. God's, God knows those who are his, and he is ultimately just. So we're in our second big parable of this series. This is not the famous one. The parable of the sower, Mike dealt with that one. That's the famous one, right? This is almost as long, but it's not nearly as famous because, I don't know, it's not as good of a story. So we're going to read uh, verses 24 through 30, and then we're going to talk about the parable a little bit. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. So this is not a complicated story. We've got a farmer. We've got some, wheat, some, some servants of his. We've got an enemy. We've got some wheats and we've got some weeds. Uh, we called the weeds, weeds tares. That's a lot of times the way it's translated in the King James. So that's, if you've heard the wheat and the tares, this is, that's what this is. I want to set the table culturally a little bit though, because when we read this, we don't necessarily understand what the point is. It doesn't grab us right away. So when Jesus is teaching, there's this thought that everybody that's Jewish is automatically in a relationship with God and will end up in heaven. That's the cultural assumption. So they're like, no, the Romans aren't going to go to heaven. They don't have any part of this. But pretty much everybody that we know, all the Jewish people, we're all good. Uh, and so when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or he talks about the kingdom of God, everybody's assuming that that's their, where they're going to end up because they're listening to him and they're sort of vaguely religious. The thought is, is if you grow up in this country with this culture then, and you worship this God just generally, you're probably fine. That's just the way that, that people of that day would have assumed that. And, and mind you, this is 1,500 years before the separation of church and state, so everybody is sort of religious officially because that's what the government says you need to do. So there, there's not this freedom of choice that we have today. There's not you know sort of this random different choices. It's like, no, you're, if you live here and you're this background, then that's the religion that you are. And so there's, there's this assumption that if you're Jewish, if you're listening to Jesus at all, then automatically you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus and John the Baptist seem to be the only people that are like, no, it's not really like that. There's some gap where just because you're raised this way doesn't automatically mean that that's the way that you ultimately end up. And so that, that's the cultural idea that Jesus is dealing with as he's teaching us. The other piece that I want to deal with is the weeds. Um, we're not an agricultural society, so this doesn't really make that much sense to us. <laughs> uh, so this weed, it's not just any weed, it's a very specific weed called Darnell, and it looks a lot like wheat. So that's, let's see, on the right is wheat that is still green, and on the left is Darnell as it's growing. And once they get fully mature, the wheat turns like a yellow goldish color, and the Darnell turns like a purplish green. And so you can tell when, right at the end, what the difference is. But while they're growing, you actually can't tell the difference very well. And, and if it was sewed together, then they would all be mixed up. Darnell is actually considered to be uh, semi-domesticated because it relies on people to harvest it and re-sow it in order to survive. Meaning it just grows up alongside wheat and rye and it assumes that you're not gonna be able to tell the difference. And so you're just gonna kind of work with it and deal with the fact that it's in there. So th this is when Jesus talks about Darnell, like he's talking about this weed specifically and, and it seems like that's a really common problem. Also, we have evidence of a Roman legal code that talks about what the proper compensation is if this thing happens. Meaning, if somebody goes in somebody else's field as an act of revenge and sows bad seed, then they're like, there's a penalty for that and we have to deal with like how much you have to pay in order to compensate for that. This is, this is, for them, this is a very practical story. They've heard of this happening, they know of this happening. This is, this is like just a normal thing that happens in life. So that's the story, just in general, that there's this enemy that sows these weeds that look a lot like wheat, and then you can't really tell the difference. And that, that's just like, people are like, yeah, that's a thing that happens. You know, it's not a prank. People's lives are in danger, but you know, what, whatever. This is, this is the way the world is. So we're going to skip down to 36 and read sort of how Jesus explains it. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So I don't wanna stumble over what Jesus talks about. I, I wanna just kind of explain it the way that Jesus explains it. Uh, Randy gave us two weeks ago, he gave us a list of five really handy rules for understanding parables. So I want to go through those. We've already done the first one. Um, we, we've already prayed. We did that at the start of the service. So that's, that's number one. The second one is that Jesus gives you an explanation. You need to read it, right? So we just read it. So let's think about the explanation to make sure that we're on, on the right track. So the one that sows this good seed is the son of man. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man throughout the gospel. He's definitely referring to himself here. There is no other way to define that. The field is the world. That's the second thing that he says. That's an important one. 
I say that because 99% of the commentators are like, the field is the church. I'm like, except Jesus said it's not. So we're going to discount what you say and go with G what Jesus said. That's always the way that we do it. So the king, the, the field is the entire world. If you've heard it taught otherwise, I'm sorry. Like you need to reread it. Uh, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So that's people that are actively following Jesus, that are trying to be obedient to him. Those are people that are, are, are in a relationship with Jesus. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. So that's everybody that's not following Jesus, that's not choosing to be obedient to him. The enemy that sowed them is Satan. Um, so anyone that's not in a relationship with Jesus is automatically under the influence of Satan. That doesn't mean that they're actively worshiping the devil. It means that they are deceived or they're under his influence. Maybe not intentionally, but that's the way that it is. Also, Satan is actively working to be a corrupting influence in the world. The harvest is the end of the age. That's a time that's coming when Jesus is going to sort out and figure out exactly who's who. Jesus knows who's who, and he's going to say, you're son of the kingdom, you're son of the evil one. And Jesus is ultimately going to bring justice, right? The reapers are angels. That doesn't really play into it very much. All of this is in verses 37 through 39. Like, I'm not making any of these up. I'm not adding anything to what Jesus already said. Like, that's just the definitions that are actually within the text. Back to Randy's list. It's very important also to pay attention to the key points versus the details. The best way to understand the story's key points is to see what Jesus spends the most time on. So when Jesus talks about something a little bit more, then that's more important than the stuff he doesn't pay attention to. So if we're looking at just sort of the, the verses as they flow, what we realize is 40, verse 40 is sort of a tipping point and everything that comes after it, 41, 42, 43, those are all verses that explain verse 40. Verse 40 is the biggest point. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. So the primary point of the parable is that Jesus knows and understands the difference between who's wheat and who's weeds, and he is going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it appropriately in a way that's, that's right. Jesus is going to hand out consequences and rewards. And again, this, this comes back to the original thought of everybody just assumed that everybody was okay, and, and so then there's some frustration with Jesus that like, well, you're saying some people are okay and some people are not okay. And then there's also this idea that Jesus is saying specifically, like you need to be obedient or you're not gonna enter into the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I know what everybody's heart is like and I know which direction they're pointed. And so that's, the, that's gonna be a decider at the end of the age. Jesus will divide the lawbreakers from the people of the kingdom at the end of the age. Again, God knows those that are his, and he is ultimately just. And so as Jesus tells the story, and as he explains this story, he's saying you need to be a little bit patient, you need to, to wait, because I know the good from the bad, and ultimately there's going to be justice. All right, so that's the main point. What difference does that make? <laughs> like, okay, I understand the parable. Why do I care, right? Why is Jesus telling the story? There, there's a couple different applications and, and I understand that 
when there's one point, there's a couple different ways to explain it and to, to apply it. So I, I don't wanna make any of these applications just sort of out of thin air. I'm, I wanna use scripture to back these up so it's not just a one-off. But I do think that these are all valid points and I'm gonna try and focus on the point that Jesus is making more than some of the other points that emerge. The first point, we need to be aware that Satan is active. So this isn't the point of the parable, okay? I'm not saying that it is, but the point is definitely there. Satan's goal is to create counterfeits and to deceive. Um, he intentionally creates uh, confusion and he does it for the purpose of destruction. Like that's, that's what his goal is. He's trying to make God's work as difficult and as ineffective as possible. He's gonna fail at that, but ultimately he still has that as his goal. Um, Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 say this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And so when Paul's writing the church in Ephesus, he's like, by the way, Satan definitely has schemes. That's not a positive word. He definitely has things that he's trying to accomplish that are negative. And you need to be aware of, what that, of what's going on. And you also need to be really firm in your faith in order to address that. So I'm, I'm not the guy that blames Satan for everything that goes sideways, okay? That's not my vibe, I'm not. I tend to think that there's enough sin in my own lives and in the lives of the people around me, like we can mess things up just fine, we don't need Satan. However, <laughs> if I do think something is Satan, I have to recognize I can't really fight him on my own, right? Like I, it doesn't say the enemy comes and the wheat rose up and kicked out Satan, that's, that's not in the parable. I've got to trust that God is the one that's in control and I've got to, like my response to Satan needs to be prayer because God's the one that can handle it, right? And I think, I think the larger picture is we have to be aware that Satan's goal is deceit and that Satan is intentionally creating counterfeits. Like he didn't sow some random weed that doesn't look anything like wheat. He intentionally sowed stuff that looks very similar. So he, his point is deception. And so when we live in this world and we're like, you know what, there's this, this idea out there that's really anti-biblical and just flies in the face of what God has said, but everybody agrees with it and now I have to think about it? That's probably satanic. That's probably a thing that Satan's like, yeah, no, we need to encourage this, right? And, and we see this a lot of times where, where Christians even, they're not looking at their Bibles, they're not paying attention to what scripture actually says. And they're like, this might be okay. Let's try and consider how we can you know, like use this. And it's like, well, that's really outside of what God has said. That's kind of opposite of what God said. You need to be aware of that. And so the, the point becomes, we have to be aware enough of scripture of who God is and what God's trying to do that we're not sucked into that. Uh, and, and we need to just be before the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, like, what do you want for me to do? How do you want me to be obedient? Because Satan is out there and he is deceptive. So that's number, the, the first one. The second, the second application is that we need to be patient. It's interesting because we have this idea that we need to fix things. <laughs> that's kind of our response just generally. We need to fix things. And, and there's someone out there, there's these unidentified servants that are like, okay, God, like, let's go fix this. Like, let's deal with this weed problem immediately. Like, let's root it out, let's deal with it, let's, let's burn them. And, he, and what, is, what is Jesus' response to them? He says, let both grow together until the harvest. So, so as a plant in the field, 
That's who we are, right? If we're the wheat, we are interconnected with a lot of people that are not. Like we're, we're the sons of the kingdom, we're the children of God, and we are connected to a lot of people that are not. And that's just kind of the way that, that life is. You know, you've got a world where some of the people that you deal with on a daily basis, your coworkers, your boss, like they kind of range from not wanting to obey God all the way to, no, they're probably actually evil. You know, and we've got that and we deal with that all the time. And it can be really frustrating as you deal with people that you know are a problem, that you know are the cause of a lot of issues. And to just be like, you know what? God's got this. God's the one that's in control. To just be patient and rely on the fact that God is ultimately just. Like Paul, Paul fully admits that the world is full of sinners. In 1 Corinthians, he's talking about church discipline and he's saying like, hey, this is how you need to address people within the church. But in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, uh, he talks about the fact that we live in this sort of mixed world. He says, when I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sins or are greeter or cheat people or worship idols. You would have to leave the world to avoid people like that. Like we know that the people that we live with on a daily basis are sinners. And a lot of them are unrepentant sinners. And, and so Jesus is saying, that's the world that we live in. And we have to be a little bit accepting of that at some level. We have this impulse where we're like, I wanna say that everybody that's right around me, that we're all wheat. Like there's no Darnell in this little circle. Like it's just wheat, no weeds. Or we're like, let's, let's move our wheat somewhere else so that we don't have to be around those other weeds. Like that, that's a Christian temptation that we have. And Jesus is like, no, you need to be patient. And you need to deal with it in the meantime. Our main job in this parable is to just be wheat. We have a different identity than the weeds. We're not the same as the weeds. But sometimes the weeds look like the wheat. And we just need to be faithful to say, you know what? I'm going to be wheat and I'm going to be confident that at the end of all of this, that my loving Heavenly Father is going to know the difference between the wheat and the weeds. And, and outside of the range of this parable, my identity in Christ, the fact that I am his, means that I have certain responsibilities, that I have certain things that I need to be doing in response, in obedience to him. But really, my job is to be patient and obedient. And that means if the guy next to me is clearly not wheat, <laughs> then my responsibility isn't to make sure that God knows, like, burn this one, like, that's not my job. John Corson says it this way. He says, whether he's your brother or whether he's your enemy, whether he's a wheat or a tear, it makes no difference. You're to love him and let God judge him. Like that, it's not my job, it's not my job to judge. That's, that's God's. My job is not to fix the world. My job is to be obedient. Peter, who was sitting there probably when, when Jesus talks about this parable, he's probably one of the ones that asked, like 30 years later, he writes this. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are in them will be exposed. God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. From God's viewpoint, he's patiently waiting for all of this to, to bear the fruit that it needs to. 
it probably has to do with the fact that he's all-knowing and gracious, and I'm neither, right? Like he knows what the right response is and he's got the patience to wait until the end. And I'm just here like, I don't know, it seems like it's a problem. It seems like you should deal with that, God. My application question here is this. How do I respond to the state of the world? Do I get frustrated? Do I get angry? Do I panic? Sometimes we panic, right? <laughs> You're like, everything's wrong in this world. Ah, oh, what are we going to do? And, and we freak out about this. Do I feel like I have to fix it? Like, I'm going to go and I'm going to fix the world and then it'll be better and then Jesus can come back. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Exactly. Do I throw up my hands and just say, I give up. I'm not dealing with it anymore. I'm not, I don't want to live in the field. I want to figure something else out. I'm not, I'm not dealing with it. I have to acknowledge that this world is a mixed field, that some people are trying to follow God, some people are not. And it's up to God to make the decision about when that needs to end and what justice looks like. And it's fine to have that attitude as long as God is actually just. Like, if I'm encouraging you to be patient, then the next thing that has to proceed after that is that we trust that God is just. Like, if God's not just, then being patient is going to be pointless. Like, we're going to be patient, and then it's going to be terrible in the end. But our next responsibility is trust that God is just. When we see the, the state of the world, there's this temptation to say that God is, is either unjust, or he's not as powerful as he says he is, or that there's something wrong. Like, we get, we get sucked into this idea that maybe that God's missing something. In fact, a lot of people that push back against the existence of God say God can't possibly be loving and good and powerful. Like he's got to pick, like he's either loving or he's powerful, but he can't be both because why would the world be so terrible? And it's tough because we ask to be patient and say we trust that God is ultimately just because God has a bigger view than I do. We have to trust that God knows who is following him and who's rejecting him and he's gonna actually make everything right in the end. Right, John 10, 14, Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own. And so we have to say, God is just and God recognizes that I'm suffering and I'm going through a lot right now and he's gonna be there for me through that. And if someone's choosing to reject God, then he's going to understand that that's where they're at and he's going to deal with that appropriately. An, an infinite, all-knowing, just God isn't going to be messed up or confused or fooled by my heart, your heart, somebody that's trying to fool everybody. Like, he's going to know, he's going to understand. Again, looking back to Second Peter, God's patient. And so when we say that God is just, we have to accept the fact that he's also patient and he's inviting people to come to himself because he loves everyone, even, even the people that don't look like they're weak. He still loves them and he's inviting them like, hey, come to me. And he's saying, I'm gonna give the time that people need in order to come to me. And so justice is absolutely gonna come for people that reject God, but God also doesn't wanna like hurry up and like end that so that as many people get pushed out as possible. He's loving, he's, he wants to draw as many people in as he can. Because the judgment's gonna be real. Like it's not like at the end of the age, God's gonna go like, oh, you were bad, stop that, you shouldn't have done that, and then that's the end of it. Like, no, it's, it's justice, it's very serious, it's very real. 
And I think we'd, we'd probably be a lot less eager for justice to be dispensed if we recognized what it means to be on the outside of God's justice. Right, verse 41 and 42 make it really clear. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not a fun end result. Like if you're one of the weeds, if you choose to be a weed, then it's like that, that's a really bad ending. And so God's trying to give those people as much time as they can in order to come back to him. And I think that's a hard part of our, of our hope in God is that we recognize that even though we have a relationship with him and ultimately he's going to reward that, it's still really hard to say there's also a point that's like a no repentance point for a bunch of people. I mean, it's amazing what we have, right? Like on the, verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's great. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Let, let me sign up for that. Right? I, I want to shine like the sun in the kingdom of my father. That sounds like a good deal. But, but the problem is, is that's, that's good for me. Yeah, that's amazing for me. But what's my heart toward all those people that, that are on the outside? So in the end, in the harvest, as, as this parable puts it, the day, the day, Peter puts it as the day of the Lord, there's gonna be a proper dispensing of justice. And, and really all that hinges on our relationship with God. And so my responsibility now is to say, I trust that God is just, that he's in control and that he's gonna make that decision and that he knows the right time to make that decision. My question here is this, does my life demonstrate that I trust God to ultimately be a just judge? Do I get angry when evil people seem like they're getting away with stuff? Do I feel like that injustice is gonna last? Do I try and make the decision about who's wheat and who's a weed and try and make sure that God knows the difference and, and call that out? Do I get angry at God when things don't go well for me because I think that I, I need this right right now? We really don't have the authority or the wisdom or the power to make those decisions, right? Like we have to wait on God to be the one that's in control. There is one thing that's in our power, and that's the last application. Be a wheat, not a weed. That might not be right. Be wheat, not wheat, not a weed. Yeah, okay. I don't know. The plural there is messing me up. Right now, today, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus is what makes you wheat. Rejecting Jesus is what makes you a weed. Like there's not really any fudge room up here for that. And so we have the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus and enter into eternal gladness at the end of time. That's the opportunity that we have. And it's a good idea to not gamble with which side of that you're gonna go with. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in verse, uh, Hebrews 9, 27. He says, just as it is it appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. So Christ having offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So my sin makes me automatically a weed. I'm on the outside. I deserve only the justice of God. And Christ enters into this world and says, I love you too much to let that happen. 
I don't want you to burn for eternity. I want you to have a relationship with me. And so he offers us his own, his own gift of himself, right? So if I come to Jesus, I'm like, I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything other than the justice of God. I need forgiveness. Then Jesus says, yes, absolutely, I'll forgive you. You come to me and I will take away your sins and we'll get you into the family of God and then you can spend eternity in joy and happiness with me. That's the way that Jesus deals with it. And the only difference between the wheat and the weed is the relationship with Jesus. And I think that when we look at this in the context of, of the way that Jesus is telling the story, there's a chance that we've lived our lives assuming that because of where we're at in church or because of our family or because of grandma, that we've got this relationship with God that we actually don't. I'd like, you to, I'd like to challenge you this morning to rethink your relationship with Jesus. Do you actually have a relationship with Jesus or do you just live in a field where there's a lot of wheat? Like Jesus knows your goals. He knows your commitments. He knows your heart. And he's drawing you toward himself and he's inviting you to have this relationship with him. My question here is, am I a wheat or am I a weed? Do I have a relationship with Jesus or do I just look like it? Do I really know who Jesus is? And if your answer is, I'm a weed, I know I'm a weed, then the, the appropriate response is, accept Jesus. <laughs> like that's the only way to respond because we've already looked at what the end for the weeds is. That's not a good thing. That's not where we wanna go. And so we have to say, I need a relationship with, with you, Jesus. If you're wheat, then you become a child of the kingdom, <laughs> right? Like you get to spend eternity with your savior in heaven. But if you're a weed, like we know where that goes. Don't choose judgment. If, you, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, I'd invite you, come forward, talk to me. You can talk to, to somebody that greeted you at the door. You can talk to one of the elders. We've got a couple up here. Um, don't, don't walk out knowing that you're a weed and, and choosing that. The thing, there's a lot of details in the story that are sort of moving parts, but the thing that, that really comes down to is Jesus really truly is in control. He actually knows the situation and he's not confused about it. And so we need to make sure that in our own lives, we, we know where we're at, that we're making the decision like, no, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to be, I want to be weak. I, didn't have, I don't have a lot of like really practical application stuff, right? Like the application questions that I asked were a little bit abstract. The first one was, how do I respond to the state of the world? That's a, that's a helpful diagnosis question, right? Like my response to the way that the world is can tell me a lot about myself. But at the same time, that doesn't, that's not like a practical fix. And, and so if you know what the right answer there is, like I need to just have peace, like I need to have, be bearing fruit, I need to be this person that, that obeys God, like how do you get there? And really it comes back to, do I trust God? And so if you look at the state of the world and you're overwhelmed by the evil in the world or the way that things are messed up or, or whatever it is, if that's too much and you're like, I'm angry about this, I'm frustrated with, about this, I'm overwhelmed, whatever it is, then the response is to say, okay, you know what? Jesus is ultimately just, and I know that he's in control. And just sort of return to that as your base. 
and say, Jesus told this story to disciples that were frustrated about the state of the world. And so I have to understand that if Jesus is in control and he knows what's going on, that I can just trust him. I don't have to respond in anger or, or get all bent out of shape or anything like that. I can just be like, all right, Lord, you're in control. What do you want me to do? And the second question is similar. It's, does my life demonstrate that I trust God to ultimately be a just judge? If the answer is, not really, I do, my life doesn't really demonstrate that, then the question is, okay, how do I get there? How do I actually trust that God is a just judge? How do I actually get to the point where I believe that he's fair? If my life is marked by anxiety and stress and, and all these things about the way that the world is or the way that my life is, then I need to do the same. It's like, it's still coming back to Jesus and saying, what does your word say, Lord? How do I commit this to you? And just praying over and over again sometimes, like, Lord, I'm stressed out about this. I'm angry about this. I, I need to give this to you. I need this, to give this to you. I have, we have to refocus on the justice of God. Because if God, like if, if the challenge is we need to be patient, we need to let go of our anxiety, all these things, then we have to really be confident that God truly is just, that it really is gonna be fair in the end. Not the way that I judge fair, but the way that the God of the universe judges fair and be confident that that's who he is. Jesus told this story to his disciples because of where they were struggling. They were looking at the world, they're like, this doesn't seem like it's good, it doesn't seem like it's helpful for us. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know, but ultimately... It comes back to the fact that God knows the ones that are his and God is ultimately just. And if we really honestly believe that, that changes the way that we look at the world. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a just God and not just that you're just, but that you're all knowing and you understand where we're at and what we struggle with. And you know, you love us enough to lead us out of that. And you also are just enough that you're gonna punish the ones that are, that are evil and you're gonna deal with that. And we can trust you to know the difference. And we can trust you to draw those lines in the right places because we can't always tell. I pray that your all-powerful justice would be a thing that comforts us. That we would really be willing to, to know and to, to be comforted by the fact that, that you're the one that's in control that we would allow you to, to form us and to change us to be more like you, and that that would mean that we recognize your ultimate justice. We thank you for your love to us and bringing us to yourself, that we have a church family that, that participates together, and, and just for all the blessings you've given us, Lord. But we, we praise you most for, for being who you are, that you're God and we're not. We pray in your name.